Jeff Salzman here. Over the holidays, we decided to lighten up on the politics and turn our attention to something a little more beautiful, and that is music. This last summer at one of our integral events here in Boulder, I met Greg Thomas, an expert in blues and jazz, whose integrally informed music commentary I've long enjoyed on Integral Life. Even though, I have to confess, I've never really liked jazz. I can't tap my foot to it. I can't sing it in the shower. Like a lot of art forms when we don't understand them, jazz for me showed up as noise, and annoying noise at that. Now, like all good integral practitioners, however, I always want to turn towards the object of my annoyance. So I was thrilled to have a chance to talk with Greg a couple weeks ago and see if he could help me find my way into this great body of American music. He turned out to be just the guide and teacher I was looking for. And I have to say, I'm really grateful to him for helping me find my way into this whole new world of artistic delight. Greg Thomas is not just an integral expert, he's one of the nation's leading experts of any stripe on jazz. He himself has played the jazz saxophone in earlier days. He's a consultant with the National Jazz Museum in Harlem and with Jazz at Lincoln Center, the largest organization in the world dedicated to the preservation and perpetuation of jazz. For several years, Greg was the jazz columnist for the New York Daily News. As we see with integral theory, art is often the leading edge of cultural and consciousness evolution, and jazz today continues to lead the way. In this two-part series, The Soul of Jazz, Greg leads us through the history of jazz from its roots in the magic, mythic, and traditional souls of African Americans at the turn of the last century, through the modern and postmodern strains of the mid and late 20th century, all the while pointing out the evolutionarily potent and ultimately integral qualities jazz conveys as it confronts enduring human polarities, such as the individual versus the group, tragedy versus comedy, competition versus cooperation, and structure versus freedom. So thanks for joining us as I start the conversation by asking Greg what it is about jazz that has been so personally inspiring to him. Let me just ask you, you know, just from your heart and from your, your aesthetic sense, what is it about jazz that you so love? Uh, what is the soul of jazz to you? I remember reading in your biography that you, you know, you grew up like the rest of us in the 60s and 70s. It, it, jazz felt sort of old, old timey to you. Right, But right. something switched. And so what is Absolutely. that? Well, um, my, my mom and dad uh, both had jazz in their collections. Um, but they had, you know, a lot of R&B, pop. So it was just a part of, of you know, kind of a background. But I, I never really associated blues and jazz with something that was contemporary to me until I uh, became a teenager. And I had an experience, um, went to Tottenville High School in Staten Island, and I went to a stage band concert, a high school stage band, the Tottenville High stage band. And I attended with a friend of mine, uh, Mason Ash, uh, third cousin to Arthur Ash. <laughs> and we were so blown away by this live big band of of performances of you know, jazz classics you know, by Basie, but also you know updated versions or jazz versions of you know modern pop tunes, you know Steely Dan and mm. others. We were so blown away from the from having that experience live right there. It was something that really went right to our our hearts, and so I decided to actually pick up an instrument. I, I didn't play anything at the time. The only thing I had played was a, a recorder, you know, one of those plastic recorders you play in elementary school. And he used to play guitar. He decided to pick back up the guitar. And I decided to, to um, take out a, a Bundy Selmer alto sax and learn how to play. And within two years, I was actually in that very band. Hmm. And um, I just immersed myself 
in 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 jazz. Um, not only as a player, but really listening to the radio. I mean, I would get up in the morning, I'd be listening to jazz. I'd come home from school, I'd turn on um, W um, with the WKCR, um, based in Columbia University. Um, big at the time in the late seventies was WRVR based at Riverside church. And they played both what was then called fusion, uh, which was a combination of elements of improvisation, but it was a mixture of, you know, pop and rock and some elements of jazz and also just what they call straight ahead, uh, mainstream jazz. And I just loved all of it and, uh, went to college minor in music and, and kept playing there, had an, a, an epiphanal experience playing with the great trumpeter Clark Terry uh, in 1984. Um, we played Duke Ellington's Squeeze Me But Just Don't Tease Me, and it forever changed my conception of sound itself and, and projecting my own identity hmm. through the saxophone. So from there, I just, I mean, it was a love affair, and it's only grown stronger, and uh is that that's the foundation for me right now to answer your question as far as the soul of jazz well yeah and that's i mean you have such a historical sort of understanding of all of this mm-hmm. and well, I, I know you work with the national jazz museum in harlem and and at the lincoln center and right, you know i mean mm-hmm. you've you've studied this and so yeah let's start at the beginning okay well uh the soul of jazz uh First of all, jazz is a, is a kind or, or type of music. So let's start there. Now, now, music is a way that humans express feelings in form and, and organize sound and space and time through rhythm, melody, harmony, and tone color. Jazz music itself developed within an, an American geographic, historical, and, and social context, and we'll touch on those. But I think it's crucial to recognize that this music called jazz was created and innovated primarily by black Americans. Now, I mention this not only because it's historically true, but through that recognition, we can, to paraphrase Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., move beyond the arid fields of race into the verdant oasis of consciousness and culture. Hmm. So, so when we say black American, instead of referencing the morphology or phenotype, skin color, outer bodily experience, what I'm doing is riffing on cultural idioms, aesthetic styles, vernacular practices of survival and freedom of expression. And so not only through jazz, but just being you know, black American music in general has had such a powerful, uh, enduring impact on people, not just in the United States, of course, but across the globe. So we can all share in, in those musical riches. So the soul of jazz is a black American cultural attitude and style we call the blues idiom, which in its humanity and musical reach is not only local or regional or even national, but I think it's global, world-centric. But let's start with the local. So if we locate jazz within its American context of development, we would focus on a people whose ancestors were brought to this country on the underside of modernity, as indentured servants and then as slaves. Um, and through that experience, certain values and meanings manifested as cultural practices and styles. Uh, for example, since we weren't free, true freedom became paramount. Um, and to millions across the globe, say during World War II, jazz actually represented American freedom. And that's one of the reasons that the Nazis, for example, banned jazz. So, Freedom of movement and freedom of expression are essential within black American culture and found its way into jazz through improvisation and in the very expressions common to jazz. For example, jazz bass players walk. Drummers ride the cymbals. Jazz practice is conversational, and we'll hear that, of course. And there are places, you know, I mentioned localities, there are places that are crucial to the development of jazz. New Orleans, Louisiana, Kansas City, uh, Missouri, Oklahoma City, Detroit, Michigan, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Houston, Texas, New York, New York. Um, these places are like um, Mercia Iliad's Axis Mundi. Uh, these are special places where legendary heroes of music created epic sounds. Hmm. But as most people you know, who know a little something about the history of jazz, 
they identify with New Orleans in Louisiana. And that's accurate. I mean, New Orleans is a coastal city in the South, which um, at that time, you know, you're talking about the, the late um, uh, 1800s, um, the 19th century. So they had a cultural mix of Native American, French, Spanish, African, with a predominantly Catholic religious base. Now, the slave system there um, under uh, Spanish and, and French uh, colonial rule wasn't as harsh as the practice uh, of enslavement as the British colonies. So on certain days and occasions, Negroes would, would gather in a place called Congo Square and play drums. Now, in Africa, drumming was a means of communication, so in most places, blacks weren't allowed to use the drum. But in New Orleans, not only was the drum allowed, but there was a ritual called the ring shout. Um, this practice was also prevalent among the Gullah of the Sea Islands in Georgia. In fact, it's still there. Um, the ring shout was a communal circle in which the black folks would clap and sing and walk around together in a, in a circular for, for, um, formation. But each individual, one at a time, would enter the center of the circle and do their own dance. Now, historically, this is, you know, connected directly to jazz jam sessions and even to freestyle hip-hop battles. So, and it's through this cultural practice, and, we, you know, I'm verbalizing this, but we're going to hear the, these things I'm talking about. Um, through such a cultural practice, black folks were able to begin to resolve tensions of what uh, Steve McIntosh calls interdependent polarities, such as individual and group, competition and cooperation, freedom within structure, and even the Apollonian and the Dionysian. So if we go back to, you know, traditional jazz, the early part of jazz, where, you know, you have mythic and magical and traditional elements, the first great jazz musician at the turn of the century was Bodie Bolden. He was a New Orleans trumpet who played with such power and range that they say the Archangel Gabriel took notice. (laughs) 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 Buddy Bolden would play with so much penetrating might that you could hear him way across town. Wow. But Buddy Bolden is shrouded in myth because he was never recorded. Greg, what date would this be? This would be around 1900. Okay, so this is 1900 New Orleans. Right. And this is coming out of this fascinating thing of the the circle, the 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 drumming. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then... Buddy Bolden. So, yeah, if, if we think about it, so 1900, that's just, you know, what, 35 years after the Civil War. Absolutely. A- absolutely. And so you have, and you, you have the Reconstruction period yeah. from 1865 to 1877. Uh, you have you know, the free school movement where there's a whole drive uh, for folks to get educated, people involved in the in the political system, I mean, there were uh, voluntary associations that were built up and developed. Of course, the black church was uh, uh, a place where political organizing as well as spiritual sustenance was, 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 was present. And uh, after 1877, because 1877 is where Reconstruction ended and you had the, the betrayal, um, the Hayes-Tilton mm-hmm. Compromise, uh, where northern troops left the South, and the system of Jim Crow um, started then. Right. Okay. But you still have, I mean, so whereas black folks didn't have really social, economic um, power and influence, culture was where right. they, where, where, where the, the lifeblood. You might of, say the lower left quadrant. Absolutely, the lower left quadrant was was where uh, meaning was, yeah. value was, and certain practices um, developed. And so, jazz is an extension of of that foundation. So, Buddy Bolden, you know, he's uh, and, I, and he's he's like a mythic character because we 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 hear about him through lore, but we do I, we don't have any actual recordings. I mean, the very first recording of jazz took place in 1917. Um, hmm. Uh, the the original Dixieland uh, jazz band, I think it's called, and uh, I mean, and the recording, I mean, recordings themselves, the phonographs, that was a, a Thomas Edison 
uh, right, of course. technological innovation that, you know, happened around that time. It, it wasn't around. So we but, couldn't but capture so anything before that. That's right. Yeah. We sure couldn't. Wow. Yeah. yeah so, so we don't have him, but we do have the very first great composer in jazz, Jelly Roll Morton. Cool. Now, Jelly Roll, his his, uh, and I think we're going to be hearing a uh, a song that he performed called Maple Leaf Rag, which was his version of a Scott Joplin composition. And this is actually him performing. Exactly. This is Jelly Roll Morton performing Scott Joplin's Maple Leaf Rag. Wow. Scott Joplin, he was the first great performer and composer of Ragtime, which is a piano-based music that was, you know, it was thoroughly, it was through-composed. I mean, it wasn't improvised, but it featured jaunty syncopations, which is something that they talked about in, for early jazz, <laughs> uh, accents on the so-called offbeats. So Jelly Roll adapted Ragtime. He incorporated, incorporated elements from Euro- European classical music, uh, and, and Latin music and, and, and the blues, you know, the blues-based ethos, ethos and style of uh, Negro Americans, as they were called then. Sidney Bechet, he's another great New Orleans um, early jazz figure who played clarinet and soprano sax. But let's actually start, let's play our first full cut with Pops, who's the, really the father of jazz as a tradition of, of virtuoso improvisation within a group context. Uh, now, most people think of, of, of Louis Armstrong as an entertainer, and he was a great entertainer. Uh, but he actually, in the 20s, particularly the late 20s, he was the most revolutionary artist of, of early jazz. Uh, you know, there were band leaders before him. He played a, a very famous uh, series of recordings that we're going to hear an example of them called the Hot Fives and Hot Sevens. Hmm. And, and there were great band leaders before Armstrong. And he was mentored by one of them, King Oliver, a fellow uh, trumpet and cornet player uh, who's based in New Orleans. So, you know, Louis Armstrong, you know, he's uh, uh, he had a tough upbringing in New Orleans. Uh, but music became a very important outlet and, and focal point of his early years there. He absorbed New Orleans musical culture, played on riverboats and brass bands, and learned from other great musicians. So by the time of this recording, and this is King Oliver's West End blues that we're going to hear, mm-hmm. he had learned how to read music, he had traveled to Chicago with King Oliver, had played in New York already with the best early large jazz ensemble in New York, the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra, and it also bested other trumpet players in what they call cutting contests. Mm-hmm. So we're going to hear a recording in which the opening 15 seconds is Louis Armstrong playing a stunning cadenza to start the song. Really? Uh, and since we've had enough talk, I think we should just go right to Louis Armstrong. Oh, here we go. Blues. This is Lewis 
and the clarinet player trading fours, going back and forth. So it's Lewis's voice. This is the great Earl Hines on piano. Hmm. Oh my goodness. So this is the, uh, the Sergeant Peppers of 1928. 1928, recorded in Chicago. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it sort of changed everything. It really did. It yeah. really did. I mean, early New Orleans jazz was collective improvisation. You know, each, each instrument had their own role, but it really wasn't uh, a music where the individual soloist was, was prominent. They had little parts where they, had, they could express themselves. But with Louis Armstrong, right. he kept doing extended uh, examples of that to, to then being full choruses. And he, I mean, he was so impactful, his feeling, his, his phrasing, both singing and playing uh, a cornet and trumpet um, was, was so impactful that it just influenced the development of, of big band jazz where the different parts were actually extending Louis Armstrong's innovations. He influenced everyone from uh, Billy Holiday to Bing Crosby and others. Uh, it really an ex- astounding uh, cultural uh, and musical influence that, that Louis Armstrong had. And that's why they call him Pops, father of jazz. Yeah. Well, I remember as a kid, so I'm I'm 62 and and born in 54. Maybe 12, 13, 14. He was on the television and everybody loved him and he was this avuncular Louis Armstrong kind of cool warm right. You know, guy. And mm-hmm. I had no understanding of the, of the music and I certainly had no understanding of his Titanic, you know, stature. Right, absolutely. You in, said it. in in the world, uh, the music right. world. He's really an epic figure uh, in, in American music and, and world music because, I mean, he, he traveled the world and uh, spread what I call the gospel of jazz. Yeah. It's so interesting as I, I sort of think evolutionarily. So we have you know, Africans being brought over here mm-hmm. and uh, with the drums, and it, it, it's interesting too what you said about the drums being outlawed everywhere but New Orleans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, New, New Orleans has always <laughs> had about. that sort of a little bit marginalized, a little bit outlaw quality, and you realize how evolutionarily potent that is. Absolutely, it, it is. And, and what happens is you have a percussive uh, orientation that is not African in the same since as it was in Africa, right. but that orientation, that disposition to put all you know movement and performance within a, a, a rhythmic and percussive manner, that's what's derived 
And that's pretty uh, new, yeah. right? I mean, in in uh, you know, in the cosmos, in the sense that, as you said, and we've talked about before, is so it brought that plus a, a European uh, sensibility. Absolutely right. I mean, that's the that's one of the beautiful aspects of jazz is that it actually combines and synthesizes aspects derived from from Africa, from Europe. Uh, I mean, the very instruments, for the most part, that we use, I mean, these are derived from the Western musical tradition. Yes. Uh, but there's also what Jelly Roll Morton called the Latin tinge. So you have that, you know, that uh, mixture. Yeah. Um, uh, that kind of a creolization of sorts of those different elements, but within a new American context, so we can say, well, that's American. Well, right on. And and, and that's, it just reminds me of one of the basic uh, engines of evolution is that we differentiate. So we see what's different. We see what pieces we have, mm-hmm. and then we integrate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Differentiation and integration uh, happens over and over in human history. And this That's is right. such a delicious point of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, now, one of the things I want to talk about before we go to our next cut is the blues. Okay. Blues is really central to the music we call jazz. Um, I mean, it's both a musical form and an attitude towards life. So as a musical form, the blues, for example, um, has call and response in it, as does uh, church music, for example. Uh, But it also resolves the duality in Western music between major and minor modes. It actually has elements of both in its tonality. Directly related to church music through the one four one amen cadence, and it's related to music all over the world via the pentatonic scale. Now, as an attitude, I'm gonna, I want to read uh, a few quotes by some very important uh, writers uh, about blues and jazz to typify the blues as an attitude. So, the first is Ralph Ellison, author of the the 1952 classic uh, Invisible Man, the novel. Yeah. Um, he wrote in a 1945 essay called Richard Wright's Blues the following. He said, the blues is an impulse to keep the painful details and episodes of a brutal experience alive in one's aching consciousness, to finger its jagged grain, and to transcend it, not by the consolation of philosophy, but by squeezing from it a near-tragic, near-comic lyricism. As a form, the blues is an autobiographical chronicle of personal catastrophe expressed lyrically. So that's the first quote. Well, that's just like bodily thrilling. (laughs) I agree. Yeah, I agree. No, really, let's pause for a moment. I mean, what's he saying is that the pain of this, of, you know, slavery. Well, that's in, in part, I mean, that's the large scale, but just as an individual, you can go through heartbreak based on lost love. Of you course. know what I mean? So, th- yeah, that's the larger frame, but most of the time the blues is, is it's very uh, uh, upper left. Mm-hmm. Um, individual, well, this is an early blues, you know, an individual, you know, guitar player, harmonica player, they sing the blues, they play along with themselves. But what it represents is that kind of tragic comic dynamic hmm. that Ralph Ellison talked about. That's another one of those interdependent, you know, dualities. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, I mean, that goes through, you know, that goes to the foundation of, of, of Western literature through Greek drama, you know, right. tragic comedy. So, well, yeah, quote, I, I think you, you, Steve McIntosh talks about indestructible polarities. That are, yes. that are built into the cosmos. Absolutely. And so, so we see, we hear and feel and see reflections of that uh, and expressions of that in this particular form we're talking about. Now, the next quote has to do with the sacred and the secular dynamics. And this is and Ralph Allison no one, again? No, this is another writer, um, more contemporary. He's, he's still here, thank goodness. Stanley Crouch is his name, and he's uh, certainly one of the uh, best respected 
and, and well-known cultural critics, particularly dealing with American culture and society and, and jazz in particular. This is what he said. He was also very influenced by Ralph Ellison. This is what he said. He said, the blues is the sound of spiritual investigation in a secular frame. And through its very lyricism, the blues achieve spiritual penetration. Hmm. So that's another angle on it. Um, and this final angle leads us up to our next cut. Because we started, we started with a, a cut from Jelly Roll Morton playing um, you know, back in uh, the teens. You know, uh, uh, 19, you know, say, you know, before we get to the 1920s. Yeah. That's the Jelly Roll Morton cut. Then we have Louis Armstrong in 1928. The next cut is going to be the Count Basie Orchestra playing a blues in 1938. Hmm. But to contextualize it, I'd like to give our listeners a quote from Albert Murray, who um, was a mentor of mine. Uh, he authored 12 books um, of, of fiction, um, nonfiction, a book of poetry. He did a As Told to autobiography of Count Basie, and he has this quote from um, a book of his called The Blue Devils of Nada, a contemporary American approach to aesthetic statement. And it's, this is regarding a big band. So think of a big band where you have the rhythm section of uh, you know, bass, piano, drums. You have a saxophone section alto, tenor, baritone. You have a trumpet section. You have a trombone section. Those are last two are brass. So this is what he wrote. He says, even as the lyrics wail and quaver a tale of woe, the music may indicate the negative mood suggested by the dreadful or any case regrettable details. But even so, there will also be tantalizing sensuality in the woodwind mockery and insouciance among the trumpets, bawdiness from the trombones, a totally captivating, even if sometimes ambivalent elegance in the ensembles, and in the interplay of the solos and ensembles, plus a beat that is likely to be as affirmative as the ongoing human pulse itself. Oh my God. So to Murray, he separates blues as such from blues music. The blues as such as causes, you know, depression, feeling down, yeah. sad. We all know what that is. Right. We all, that's a universal human experience. But blues music is actually written and performed to counter the blues as such. As it, carry, that, as it carries the energetics of the, of the, the tale of woe. Both. Say that again? Say well, that one more time? I was going to say that so it counters it as it also carries the content yes. of the sad, sad story. That's right. It doesn't deny the fact that, as Murray says, life can be a low-down, dirty shame. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It does not deny that. Right. You know what I mean? That is there. But it also gives a way to, as a counter-agent, to, to what he calls stomp the blues. Stomping the blues is the name of one of his classic classic text. So as we hear the Count Basie Orchestra playing a song called Swinging the Blues, this was recorded in 1938. Right. You're going to hear what they call the Great American Rhythm Section of Count Basie Piano. He was from Red Bank, New Jersey. Walter Page on bass, Freddie Green on guitar, and the original jazz drumming master, Papa Joe Jones, on drums. So and, and, and this by this point, the modern 4-4 swinging jazz had already been synthesized. Uh, and you're going to hear solos, and this is key, by Lester Young, one of the two greatest early jazz tenor saxophonists, the other being Coleman Hawkins. And those two, Coleman Hawkins and Lester Young, are like the yang and yin of tenor saxophone playing. Coleman Hawkins had a very robust, harmonically-based uh, style. Uh, he played with Louis Armstrong and the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra in the 20s, so he was directly there with the father of jazz, and he became the 
the, the, really the king of tenor saxophone, but Lester Young, his style was cool, like a slow-burning flame. Uh, it was lyrical and melodic. So when you hear the first solo you hear, the tenor sax, is Lester Young, and then you'll hear his tenor sax section mate, Herschel Evans, who plays in the style of Coleman Hawkins. So why don't we check it out? Count Basie, playing piano, you deal with the blues he does as murray says the, the blues doesn't like it when you when you are insouciant when you're elegant when you just you have a don't carefied attitude uh, we we know the blues is there but we're gonna swing anyway wow <laughs> no that's just fantastic and and to have all of these virtuoso musicians mm-hmm. sort of flying in formation oh, where right. they give each other the space and then they come back in together and it's just beautiful as a sort of act of human uh, collective movement and behavior. That metaphor you just used is so appropriate. You said flying in formation. Uh, when you think about the fact that World War II was about to jump off, yeah, uh, you had, see one of the things about the big band era in the 30s, the, the popular dance of the time was called the Lindy Hop or the Jitterbug. Uh, big band jazz uh, and the Jitterbug uh, and Lindy Hop. It really was a response to, I mean, when you look at the lower right mm-hmm. and you look at the the uh, institutions that were there and, de- and developing, you look at the technologies that were under development uh, with the industrial age, you have these bodily and musical and other artistic ways of responding to that. Absolutely. Now, in some cases, it responds in an anti-fashion. In some cases, it incorporates it. Yes. But it's, it's all there happening at the same time. There's a great book by a gentleman named Joel Dennerstein called Swinging the Machine, 
modernity mm. technology in African American culture between the wars that came, I think, in 2003. Oh, my that goodness. talks about that particular uh, uh, thesis. But the earlier, and this is why I'm so glad that you mentioned about flying information, that's like, you know, that's uh, flying literally, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the air, airplanes and such. But the earlier technology that influenced early jazz is the trains. Mm-hmm. So the beat, the that kind of chugging along mm-hmm. and forward progression, that is very similar to the sound of the train. In fact, train onomatopoeia musically is something that's a fundamental element of jazz, and they're all kind of compositions of Ellington's, Duke Ellington's first uh, uh, recorded composition, Eat St. Louis Toodaloo, uh, Daybreak Express. I mean, there's just I mean, countless numbers of songs wow. that have the train in the title. Isn't that something? Yeah. I mean, it's really giving me the like the the, the shivers. I mean, this. I mean, we know that culture moves forward in all four quadrants. And, you know, so the lower right is our technology. It's the uh, right. collective of the exterior. The right. lower left is the collective of our interior, or our culture, our, you know, shared sort of emotions and, and uh, expression. Right. And that is just a beautiful um, uh, example of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now the next phase, as we continue moving, moving up, oh, uh, historically uh, and and vertically, <laughs> uh-huh. um, would be the style they call bebop. Now, now during World War II, we mentioned that you know big bands they became very hard to keep together economically. You had a lot of band leaders and musicians in the bands that served in the armed forces. Right, and I counted in that last the Count Basie that was sixteen people in that band. In there that you orchestra. go. That's yeah. right. Usually, it was anywhere between fifteen and eighteen people in the in the big band. So that's not that easy economically. You know, you're touring. And, you know, you got a lot of people to pay. So there was, in the same, in a similar fashion, that the swing. They call it the swing era during the '30s. The big band era uh, was an extension of early jazz, particularly New Orleans-based jazz. Though you had you had the ragtime influence that we mentioned, and then in, in the East. You had stride piano, which was an extension of ragtime, uh, but was more foundational for jazz. Stride piano is where the bass is played in the left hand and it, it goes back and forth, like jumps up, like, it's like almost like a dance, and the improvisational part of the melody is played in the right hand. So this was big in, on the East Coast, like in Harlem, uh, during the 20s and 30s. But in the 40s, there was a style in Harlem that developed called bebop. And it was, it was another one of these revolutionary kind of... It's, it's revolutionary and evolutionary. It's, it's really both. Hmm. So it's a, it was a break from the swing era in that it was a small group. They played compositions faster than they played it during the swing eras, but also slower. Um, hmm. The, the 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 level of virtuosity increased even higher. Where to play bebop, you you pretty much had to be a virtuoso to even even play the style. Um, you had high flying virtuoso improvisations. The melodies were angular. The harmonies emphasized the higher harmonics of of a song, and rhythmically, um, it. Whereas in 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 big band jazz. You heard the bass drum, boop, 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 keeping the beat. In bebop, and this started with Papa Joe Jones, I call him the father of the original master of, of jazz drumming. He started this where the beat was no longer kept on the bass drum, but was kept on the hi-hat, ting, 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 ting. Hmm. It opened up and loosened up the rhythm. I mean, the rhythm of jazz is, is really what's so fundamental to it, along with improvisation. Um, so you had... In bebop, you have people like Dizzy Gillespie, trumpet, Charlie Parker, alto sax, uh, Bud Powell, piano, Thelonious Monk, piano, uh, Kenny Clark on drums, Max Roach on drums, both very influenced by Papa Joe Jones, who played this new small group style of music. But the blues was still central, so there was a response to 
and a reaction to, it still incorporated the, 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 the developments that had taken place before. So we're going to hear a cut called um, KC Blues. KC is Kansas City. Now, Charlie mm-hmm. Parker, this is who we're going to hear. I'd say, frankly, after Louis Armstrong, he's really the most revolutionary improviser in jazz after Pops. He was from Kansas City, Kansas, but grew up in Kansas City, Missouri. So let's hear Charlie Parker's version uh, of the blues in a small group bebop. All right, here we go. Kansas City Blues. Now, this is a young Miles Davis. Oh, interesting. beautiful i mean i just it was kind of like riding a magic carpet beautiful beautiful metaphor absolutely yeah. or and another one is you know surfing a wave yeah absolutely yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> i mean charlie parker he he fundamentally he's a he's a he's a blues man you know um playing the kansas city uh big bands uh you know territory band um, but you know, came to New York. I mean, he went through his own apprenticeship, and that's a model that's very important in jazz. When you look at you, you know, start from the beginner as an apprentice. Uh, in those days, the journeyman period was usually you're playing with big bands or yeah. other bands led by you know older older players. And well, as you pointed out, Miles Davis was on this 
as a young Young trumpeter. Exactly. Young who became, you know, a a master himself and and a great band leader. I mean, really a leader of leaders. So many of his his players became leaders themselves. Wow. Uh, We'll hear some of them, you know, like we'll hear John Coltrane next. Uh, but but Charlie Parker, um, that that blues is the f- fundamental. I could you know, we could play so much more of each of these. But there's some Charlie Parker, like Coco, for example. Uh, there are any numbers we could play. That the, the the virtuosity, the speed, the velocity is so blinding that it's hard to believe. Yeah. But I wanted folks to hear just in this blues thread that we're doing. Um, the different ways of interpreting and expressing um, that that blues idiom that we started off talking about. I mean, when you when you listen to Charlie Parker, the vocality of his playing. I mean, sounds like he's 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 expressing himself like a like he's talking to you. Well, he you was. Know? I mean, um, I, I, we talked before. I, I didn't know this about Charlie Parker, but he died at thirty four. Uh, right. So he burned very brightly. Uh, yes. He was uh, a, a heroin addict, correct? Yes, yes. And, and you know, th- th- that's an oft-told story. It really does, um, you know, there's an argument for it in a way. I mean, it it lightens, it, it takes you into a, a state that um, geniuses can access in a way that becomes historic. I don't know. That's true. No, I, that's, 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 I'm not sure it's worth the price, and you know it's tragic right. in its own way. But there it yeah. is. That's the human. I mean, that's part, the that's a human art, story so right there. Of that, in, in Charlie Parker's case, um, he was in a car accident when he was younger, and he took morphine for pain and ended up going from morphine to heroin. So that was a very sad, you know, uh, result for, for him of that. And 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 this is and this shows you some of the underside of great artistic genius. There were many performers in the 40s and 50s who, because of Charlie Parker's genius abilities, they associated his heroin use with his ability to play. Yeah. And those two, two things, he played despite that or in spite of that. But there were, there were people who tried junk, tried heroin because heart Charlie Parker. And that was something that was very hurtful to him. Um, mm. and, you know, you read uh, histories of him. You know, he did not want people to go that route like mm-hmm. him. But that that was one of the 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 shadow results. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. There's a, a oft told story about this with spiritual teachers as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. And right. so now we're moving into John Coltrane. So yes, uh, we are. I it. mean, we've gone from the 20s with Louis Armstrong to 30s with Count Basie to, you know, 40s, really, into the 50s with Charlie Parker. And um, there's a very famous photo of a young John, John Coltrane in the back of uh, the stage with Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie uh, in, in the front. So there's that apprenticeship model again. I mean, he he actually uh, played with uh, Johnny Hodges, a uh, Johnny Hodges was the great alto saxophonist with the Duke Ellington Orchestra that we will hear. Um, and so he apprenticed with Johnny Hodges. Uh, Earl Bostic was a great uh, saxophone player and band leader. Um, he even played R&B saxophone, you know. He, he went through those stages. But by the mid-50s, Miles Davis, who was a leader by that, that point, and Miles, uh, he had gone through playing in bebop, playing uh, the cool school, which was, you could say, West Coast jazz, um, which was a, a, a counterstatement to hot bebop. Well, cool jazz was cool. But Miles was a part of, of that. He's part of the style called hard bop, which had uh, the fire of bebop, but not as necessarily complex harmonically. Um incorporated elements of gospel. So this is part of the different strands or, or um, you know, streams of jazz development. Uh, so so John Coltrane was selected by Miles Davis in the mid-50s to join his group. And um, they were part of probably the most famous, at least the best-selling jazz recording 
of all time, uh, Kind of Blue, which was recorded in 1959. Oh, interesting. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Miles Davis, trumpet, Cannibal Adderley, uh, alto sax, John Coltrane, tenor, um, Bill Evans on piano uh, with Winston Kelly on one cut, um, Paul Chambers, bass, and Jimmy Cobb on drums. But the cut we're going to hear, because we've we got this blues theme, we're going to hear John Coltrane play uh, a blues called Bessie's Blues, which I'm not sure. It may it may refer back to Bessie Smith, who was uh, like the queen or empress of the blues back in the 20s. Uh, but this is a different style. This is, um, for me, because John Coltrane went through his oh, development, sorry. and by the 60s he was playing free jazz, which we'll talk about through Ornette Coleman shortly. Um, and what I feel here is... One of the things I feel is that he's almost trying to break out. He's on the verge of busting out from the constraints, some of the constraints that he may have been feeling uh, uh, at this point. I mean, this is what I hear. You may hear something else, but this is John Coltrane playing Bessie's Blues. All right. Coltrane Quartet featuring a uh, train on tenor sax, McCoy Tyner piano, 
Jimmy Garrison on bass and Elvin Jones on drums. <clears throat> yeah, that was, for me, just thrilling. I mean, it had yeah. an alive sort of procreant quality. A lot, a lot of juice. Mm -hmm. I mean, he recorded that actually in 1964, um, uh, right? I think after the Live at Berlin recording and, and before his 1965, A Love Supreme, which was dedicated to God. Um, mm. So he had a very strong spiritual arc uh, in his playing, in his, in his music. And uh, it's also related to his study of, of, of Einstein and, and, and quantum physics. Oh my goodness. Um, and developing systems uh, based on based on those ideas. There's a book coming out in April, um, Basic Books, um, by Stefan Alexander, who's a physicist who just became a full professor at Brown uh, starting in January. He left Dartmouth. And he talks about John Coltrane in relation to uh, physics and other uh, aspects of, of jazz and relating, going all the way back to Pythagoras uh, and the music of the spheres, but but doing it up to date uh, mm -hmm. with the latest science. So uh, there's a lot of incredible connections here that uh, will be made apparent very soon. <laughs> Greg. Very soon. <laughs> it, it, now, it's so much I fun. Say, I, I got to say, it's so much fun to have you take us through this tour <laughs> and, and really you know, tie these, you know, weave these strands together into a fabric that makes sense. And, right. you know, it, it, it's so helpful in, in accessing it. Well, thank you. Thank you. Now, one thing I, I do have, I mean, the critical. Um, you have to bring a, a, a critical eye uh, and critical sense to integral, to, to the evolutionary philosophy, to all of it. I mean, so we can help improve it. I mean, right uh, Albert Murray calls this process of development that has so many applications, you know, uh, extension, elaboration, and refinement. And, and to refine something, the critical has to be really key to it. And one criticism that I have of the integral philosophy, the theory, the models, thus far at least, is uh, it's it's lack of focus on improvisation. Yeah. Uh, to me, improvisation, it, it it isn't in jazz or in comedy or theater. Just you know, just making stuff up. It is making stuff up. True. But to do it at a high level is so much study. There's so much you have to have down to be able to do it well. But improvisation is actually fundamental to human life. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we, when we have this conversation, I mean, we had certain chord changes that we laid out them thematically and we knew the songs we were going to play, but we didn't know exactly how the conversation was going to go. So conversation is improvisational. There's actually a series, a two-volume series that will be published by Oxford University Press on critical improvisation studies, okay? Mm. That's uh, going to be coming out soon where it takes a look at improvisation in all of these different areas and fields, not only in the academy, but of life. So this is something that uh, I intend to do more work in writing on so that these uh, perspectives on improvisation can be part of, of uh what we do here yeah. as a well, daily evolver and uh, through the integral. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking in real time because I haven't really considered this much. But, you know, I always look at, so uh, uh, where does it fit into an evolutionary map? And it's, it's, it's almost like um, uh, improvisation itself evolves. And I think of my, I mean, playing patty cake as a kid. And there's mm -hmm. a certain improvisation to that. And oh, at, at tribal levels, there's improvisation that happens within these basic structures. And then the whole right. system gets more complex and more complex right. and more complex. Right. And, I mean, and then it takes, you know, and then there's these virtuoso improvisers. Improvisers. <laughs> <laughs> that we've been listening to that, I mean, what do you say? I mean, it's just, right. uh, again, thrilling. I mean, for me, and, and this is, you know, I'm now we're getting to the heart of some of the research that I'm doing that I haven't quite um, brought out 
to the extent that I intend to. But for me, there's some type of relation between emergence, self-organization, in, in like fractal geometry, yeah. and improvisation. Yeah. There's a connectivity there that I'm, I'm working through that yes. I think is a, a thrilling uh, area yes. of inquiry. Yes. Well, and it's, it, you know, I think going back to what you were talking about with the uh, polarities, of mm-hmm. there's improvisation, and then there's the basic structure that and both evolve, so right. that the basic structure is the platform mm-hmm. on which you stand to do right. this next level of improvisation. Exactly. You know, something like that. That's right. This is the end of part one of The Soul of Jazz, my conversation with integral jazz critic Greg Thomas. In part two, we will pick up the story and carry it through to the contemporary expression of this uniquely American art form. Thanks again for listening.